Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, welcome to the class in Romans, and today we'll look at uh, chapter 15. We might see this chapter as the the culmination of Paul's vision of a new sort of people, a new sort of worship, a new establishment of heaven on earth, new temple koinonia. I think the the chapter ends on a note and hope here. I don't mean just in the sense that he mentions it. He mentions it three times, but I think it is, as we're looking at all of these chapters and trying to follow the deep grammar in Paul's thought, I think that it really is the the word hope captures it. He's going to, in his the quotations from the Old Testament, it plays a, a leading role. And we might think, well, isn't isn't this whole chapter about love and in the enactment of love? And yes, I think it is. But in fact, the way in which this love is going to be enacted is Paul's vision of the way that hope functions. It is his universal vision. Paul sometimes might look a little bit like Don Quixote to an unbeliever, that here he's tilting at, he's picturing things in these cosmic terms. And if you counted the number of Christians, you know, maybe we're talking about five house churches in the city of Rome and maybe 20 people in each house church. Maybe there's a hundred Christians in the city of a, a million people. If you think of the little communities that Paul has established, you know, throughout Asia Minor and around Antioch and then in Greek-speaking world in Europe, it may not seem to amount to much. But the point is to capture his vision, that the the hope is the way that he not only dispels that cognitive dissonance, and I think we need to get our own, that is that we may be thinking, well, he's describing this universal salvation. And our tendency may be to say, well, wait a minute, what about dot, dot, dot. What about the, just talking about a small number of people, and what about the unbelievers? What about, but that's not Paul's focus here. That's not the, the way in which his hope functions. He may not be able, and we may not be able, to uh, articulate how it is that all peoples are being brought in, but that's the vision. And the way that they're being brought in, Paul sees as a direct result of his own, his own work. So that if we look at the three quotes here, really he's building up to that in the chapter. I will therefore joyfully praise you among the Gentiles and will sing psalms to your name. So the picture in this new temple that praise songs would be lifted up to God, that literally quoting from the the Psalms. And he's going to quote from the three major sections of the Jewish scriptures, from the the Torah, the prophets, and the the writings, so that what he sees, you know, up early in the chapter, he talks about the consolation of the scriptures, the whole point of the scriptures, he's saying, our interpretive key to the scriptures are the hope, so that we might have hope through endurance, through the Scriptures. That is, in Paul's reading of the Old Testament, this is the vision that he gets, that what he's accomplishing, what he's seeing come about in and through the gospel, 
is the, the realization of the hope of Israel. At the same time, there is this huge vision. It is one that needs to be negotiated in and through the particulars. In other words, the the weight of the cosmos comes to bear upon a very particular thing. How are you going to eat? How are you going to associate? That there should be, you know, again and again through the letter, he says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jews and other people, Jews and Gentiles. There's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. This is his continual vision in, in all of his letters, that there is no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but there's a new kind of humanity. And so that comes to bear then in how you treat other people. Now we who are strong, this is the opening, ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are weak. In the closing, we get the idea there's all sorts of people in these uh, house churches, maybe five house churches. There's former slaves, maybe people that are presently slaves. There's Jews. There's people of high culture. But the whole point is that each of us is to please his neighbor for the good of the neighbor. And this is the example that he gives us in Christ, that even in the example that he gives us here of Christ, that he did these things not to please himself, which is a kind of understatement, and of course, uh, of the death of Christ, to the passion of Christ. But the point here is, so in the same way, we're to live a sacrificial lifestyle in, in regard to other people. The vision that Paul has is on the order of other places in the New Testament of heaven and earth converging. You know, you think of the early chapters of John, it seems to be a repetition of Genesis or an echoing of Genesis that there is the re recreation. And in this recreation, when Jesus enters the temple, the temple was had cosmic significance for the Jews. When Jesus enters the temple, cleanses the temple, that seems to be the culmination of the point that John is making. Recreation is commenced, and here is the Lord has come to the temple, and this is, Christ is the one who is the, the new temple. And so Paul is seeing his own ministry as fashioning this new sort of temple community, that you are the temple, he's saying. The, to the Corinthians, but he's saying as much, I think, here in Romans. You know, Wright points out, it's not that he's Paul's picture of snatching souls out of the world. No, his vision is of the redemption of the entire world, and that his own work is a continuing then of this cosmic reconciliation. The marker of this reconciliation is between Jew and Gentile being brought into one new kind of humanity. And, and of course, the vision of unity, the Jew-Gentile is the marker of all, all sorts of unities. If we think of back at chapter 7, he's describing this internal division within the individual. This in, encompasses our entire, we might think of it the way that we understand or know anything. It's always in and through some sort of identity through difference. He's establishing a different way of knowing ourselves, of knowing other people, of knowing who God is. And this will then result in new virtues. That is the, the, the very understanding of what is to be valued. Humility is not a Greek virtue, but it's certainly at the top of the Christian virtues. It's a new ethic in which one will not demand their own rights. It's a, a new kind of religion that is certainly a completion of what Judaism was, but it's the fulfillment of that, and, and in that sense, it involves a different sort of worship. 
And that's really what he's describing in the, again in these quotations. Praise the Lord, all the Gentiles, and let all people sing. There will be Jesse's root and one rising up to rule Gentiles on whom the Gentiles will hope. And so the vision is here of heaven and earth being united in a new temple sort of koinonia. And again, the cosmic vision is focused then on practical concerns. Paul sees the, the significance of his taking this offering. He's collected monies from the various churches in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, and he's bringing it to Jerusalem. And, and money, you know, we should never underestimate because Paul deals with this very diplomatically. And anytime you're talking about money, people that can be easily offended or get suspicious. But on the other hand, money can be a sign, of the most visible sign of the concern and love that people have for one another. And this is the, the commission that Paul was given, even from uh, the council in Jerusalem, to not forget the poor. And of course, the poor in this instance uh, is those Jews, those Christian Jews in Jerusalem who may have been cut off from their various forms of social care, you know, that they might have had as being part of the Jewish community. That, uh, and so he sees the cosmic vision comes to bear in very practical concerns. And this is true, you know, that actual people in real world situations are themselves then the markers of what is taking place in this reconciliation. You, know, you can think of the, the tiny little letter Philemon and the two people that Paul deals with, Onesimus and Philemon, well, they themselves then need to be reconciled so that Paul spends an entire letter, it's worthy of a letter, to work out this reconciliation in individual cases. So, you know, is it an abstract theology in the sense that it just floats free of things? No. Well, we might say it's an abstract theology, though, that accomplishes reconciliation. And so that's the sense of hope here. The two things are brought together, daily practical concerns with this cosmic vision. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. And Paul sees this unity then as accomplishing the glory of God. What is the opposite of glory? It, it is in division. It's in that which, you know, glory is that which is incorruptible. The opposite is corruption, death, division, disunity. And so when we talk about the glory of God, even from chapter 10, he's been describing the, the accomplishment of unity in the person of God, as Shema, the God who is one. And this is being worked out then. That is that it's a real world unity. The unification of the world testifies to who God is that the universal nature of God is affirmed in a universal unity. And, of course, anything that does not capture a theology or, or a church life that in some way distorts this is then distorting. It is unholy in Paul's language. Holiness is unity. Unholiness is disunity. Now, he, he's describing his own travels here, and we have news of his travels that we really don't know. We never knew that he went as far north as he describes here. And he speaks of going to Spain. And, of course, it may be that we, we know more than Paul does at the end of this writing about what happens to him when he goes to Jerusalem to take this offering up, that he's going to be arrested. Eventually, he'll, he'll make it to Rome, but only under armed guard. 
But it may be that in Paul's vision and you know his picture here of Isaiah that he has this passage in Isaiah. We don't quite know what these places are, but it may be that he sees accomplishing this vision in Isaiah as part of his own mission. And it may be that he just practically wants to go everywhere that he can in Rome. And so the, the vision is of an alternative kingdom, one rivaling that of Rome itself, in which truth then is unified, in which there's no longer ethnic differences marked in the way that you eat. And of course, that's the it, throughout here, and we talked about this in chapter 14, uh, it may be that both kinds of eating are causing problems. There may be primarily Gentile groups that are coming out of idolatry. There may be Jewish groups, and so the food is no longer, ethnicity is no longer to be the marker, that the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, so creation is good. It's, you know, Paul's vision here is that all things will be summed up in Christ Jesus. This is the radical orthodoxy, you know, I think, and the radical orthodoxy is rightly catching the vision here that we're to think differently in every realm because of who Christ is, even at a very practical level. That is, that it's an abstract understanding that has practical ramifications in every area. And so even the way that we think in uh, you know, our epistemology is different because we've become a different sort of human being. There's an alternative way of being human, and I think that's the vision with which Paul is ending this book before he turns to the long section of greetings that may in itself be one of the most touching parts of the book of Romans, but we'll come to that next time. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.